Our first scripture this morning is Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Psalm 126, verse 3 and verse 8 through 11. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the people. All who see them will acknowledge that the people, they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the young plant come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Luke 1, 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has provided, performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've really been enjoying the stars in our sanctuary this Advent. Thank you, Karen Elliott, again, for organizing that project. Did any of our children make one of these stars that we see up here? Nice. Any kids at heart also maybe participate? Amazing. Well done. They have really set the tone well for our Advent Action Series as we learn to be alert and to take action to follow where Jesus is leading us. As we've made our way through Advent action, we've considered how the waiting season of Advent is really an active waiting. So while we wait for Jesus's arrival, we are moved to action as well. And in these first couple of weeks, we've considered what it means to be alert and to make way for God. Today, our action to consider is to proclaim. What does it mean to proclaim? Speaking of stars, 
Did you know that stars and other parts of God's creation participate in proclaiming? Here's a few, uh, few quotes from Psalms. From Psalm 19, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And from Psalm 50, And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. And finally, Psalm 148, Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. When you think of proclamation, you might also think about a few other examples, such as like a big announcement by a government leader or organization, like Prince Humperdinck um, proclaims that Princess Buttercup is going to marry him. Joke's on him, right? Or perhaps a proclamation between people, like a declaration of love, like when Kristoff finally proposes to Anna. I got inspiration from Bethany's sermon earlier this fall. <laughs> I think there were also some really good examples in our children's play this morning of proclaiming, such as the angels and all of the characters when they just let us and go tell it on the mountain. Each of these give us a picture of what it means to proclaim, to use our voices, to make good news known, to tell the truth. We proclaim the truth of who God is, what God values, and the new creation, the new renewal that God is bringing about. I want to explore just a few ways that we engage in proclamation, which I think are modeled really well by Mary and the prophet and Isaiah. We proclaim as an act of spirit-filled worship, we proclaim as an act of joyful resistance, and we proclaim as a prophetic witness. So as an act of spirit-filled worship, our act of proclamation serves to glorify God and to bear witness to God's activity in the world. When something is being proclaimed, it's being stated for others to hear. It's the good news that needs to be shared. We proclaim and we rejoice in who God is, we proclaim that God is with us, God is for us, and that God loves us. And so we give God honor and praise. But the way we're empowered to do this is by the presence of God's spirit resting upon us. Let's take a look at Isaiah 61 again. The prophet says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And down in verse 10, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For the prophet, the Spirit's presence and commissioning is the source of their proclamation. They've been anointed by God to proclaim good news. And this anointing also results in an overflow of delight and rejoicing in God. I think most of us know that when Jesus later begins his ministry, the Spirit descends upon him at his baptism, and it fills him as he's tempted in the wilderness. The Spirit fills him and fuels his proclamation of God's kingdom. It also, to me, brings to mind what Jesus eventually tells his disciples before ascending to heaven in Acts 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In Mary's story, she's just arrived to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who is also pregnant 
We weren't able to read those earlier verses in Luke chapter 1, but when Mary arrives at Elizabeth's home, the Spirit fills Elizabeth and causes the baby John the Baptist within her to leap. And Elizabeth goes on to make a proclamation to Mary. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Elizabeth experiences the filling of the Holy Spirit and the physical response of the baby within her womb. And she not only blesses Mary, but glorifies God and identifies Jesus as her Lord. This spirit-filled blessing upon Mary fuels her own proclamation in song that we just heard read in response. The beginning says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Both the prophet and Elizabeth make their proclamations of worship out of an overflow of the Spirit's indwelling. Their witness to God's great deeds is not just what God has done for them, but who God is and what God has done for everyone. Namely, what God has done for their own people who have endured a great amount of trial and suffering. Isaiah and Mary's proclamations reflect the suffering endured by their people in a worshipful and authentically honest way. They model what I'm going to call joyful resistance. That's another way that we proclaim as an act of joyful resistance. Our worship, our proclaiming who God is, even in our circumstances, whatever they might be, this rests in God's reality in the grand arc of God's story, as Andrew has previously mentioned in this series. The term joyful resistance is not something that I made up. It's been used by many other people, the majority of those being people in marginalized contexts. And they describe how experiencing and proclaiming joy can be an act of resistance in the midst of oppression. Willie James Jennings, a professor and theologian, describes what it means to view joy as resistance. He says, I look at joy as an act of resistance against despair and its forces, all the forces of despair, and all the ways that despair wants to drive us toward death and wants to make death the final word. Jennings explains how joy is realized in both beautiful and broken ways. On the one hand, there is beautiful joy that is formed um, and experienced by those who have experienced oppression in smaller groups. It's a joy that Jennings says is built inside a forced segregation, and his example is primarily African diaspora communities. On the other hand, Jennings notes that Jennings notes there's a segregated joy that is built upon segregation. It's built on insult. It's built on hatred of the other. I think we've all witnessed what happens when humans take delight and find a kind of joy in relegating others because of their differences, beliefs, and identities, in demonizing whoever we see as the other, in espousing harmful ideologies like white Christian nationalism. There are many examples where the joy, quote unquote, 
of belonging to a group is dependent upon excluding or even despising other people. Jennings wonders if there can be a kind of joy that, yeah, it honors the joy found in communities and families and other groups, but a joy that doesn't segregate and rather brings the joy of different groups together and opens up that vision for everyone. He wonders and imagines a kind of Pentecost joy, a joy that's only made possible by the presence and the witness of Christ. Why am I saying all of this? Well, as we heard earlier, in the Advent season, today's theme is joy, which Michael and um, the Lynns read for us at the beginning of the service. Historically, it's a Sunday during the often solemn and penitent Advent where we light the candle, we proclaim the joy of Jesus' coming. And in our readings for today, the prophet and Mary do the same. They proclaim words of hope and expectancy. But these proclamations take place in difficult contexts. For the prophet, their proclamation of freedom and restoration is being made to a people who are dealing with the traumas of exile. And in Mary's case, in the Gospel of Luke, her social and political location is also important to note. Mary and her cousin Elizabeth were women living under Roman occupation in the first century. As women, they held limited status and social mobility. Religion and politics were deeply intertwined. And the Jewish people who lived under Roman imperialism longed for rescue and for deliverance. The prophet and Mary are able to proclaim and worship God in joyful resistance. They know that God is with them, that God is with their people, and they know that their oppression is not what God desires for them. They are not simply being happy with what they have. They are standing in joy and upon the truth of who God is for them and for all who are brokenhearted, mourning, or suffering. As Andrew quoted last week from Mitri Raheb, hope is what we do. And I would like to suggest that also proclaiming God's reality and God's presence with us in darkness is also what we do. To those who find themselves in contexts of marginalization, oppression, or any kind of distress, how does God empower you to proclaim in joyful resistance? And to, for us, when we find ourselves in positions of strength or power in different contexts, are we listening? Are we magnifying the proclaiming voices of others? How is God inviting us to experience joy together as we proclaim the kingdom that is and the restoration that is still to come? Our proclamation can serve to open others' eyes to God's reality and encourage them to walk in it. Our proclamation can serve as a prophetic witness. When we talk about the prophetic, we are not primarily talking about telling the future, although this can be a part of a prophetic act or word. But if you remember from our prayer practice series earlier this year, we talked about the prophetic in the context of prayer. And a lot of this prophetic proclamation is what Paul calls speaking to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort from 1 Corinthians. So this can often be true in our proclamation. We might be called to bring someone else an encouraging word from Scripture or to remind them of the hope that we have in Christ. Additionally, in our proclaiming, we may be called to boldly claim 
how God is speaking through the present moment, correcting us, drawing us to repentance, and how God's promises have and will come to pass. We're talking about bearing witness to God's activity in the world and how God is bringing about the renewal of all things. The prophet speaks of the Spirit's anointing upon them to proclaim a message from God. There is good news. There is hope. There is a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. The prophet proclaims God's word to the people, assuring them of the end of their time in exile. And this word also contains a note about the future. Down to verse 4, it says, They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the cities that have been devastated for generations. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I want to note briefly that um, the note about they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore places long devastated in the whole passage points to the fact that it is the people who were mentioned as those who are mourning, the people who are mentioned as those who have been oppressed and broken, those are the people who get to participate in the repair um, and in the rebuilding of ancient ruins and the restoration that God is talking about through the prophet. And I think it's important to hear that those who have been broken and those who have been cast out are going to be a part of that repair. In the Gospel of Luke, if we include the first part of Mary's journey to Elizabeth's, we get to witness such a unique moment of not one, but two named women speaking prophetically over one another in worship and in joyful proclamation. If we look back at that passage in Mary's song, what does it the Spirit impress upon Mary to communicate from God? We're looking at verses 50 to 55 here. And what I noticed when I was looking closely at Mary's song, also called the Magnificat, I was really struck by the verbs that Mary uses throughout her song. We've been talking a lot about verbs in this action series. But I realized that she's proclaiming who God is and what God, the Mighty One, has done. Um, But Luke shapes this by using past tense verbs in the original Greek. But in our English translations, they're given... Sorry to go to English class for a second, but they're given in perfect tense to indicate that the actions were in the past, but they're ongoing. So if we look at those verses where Mary proclaims that God has performed mighty deeds, God has scattered, God has brought down, etc., has filled the hungry with good things. Why does this matter? The way that we receive this prophetic proclamation I think, is a pretty great picture of the already and the not yet of our faith. The Magnificat is, as one scholar calls it, a paradoxical prophecy. Mary speaks about the future God is going to bring in through the yet-to-be-born Messiah, but she uses what God has already done in the past to talk about that. God's kingdom has arrived. 
yet we are still waiting. Jesus has come, yet we must be alert as we approach his return. The Lord is here, but we can take action to make way for him in righteous hope, in worshipful, resistant, prophetic proclamation. As Andrew preached last week, living with righteous hope is allowing our future life to spill over into this present life. If I may suggest, so is living with righteous joy, proclaiming God's kingdom here and the kingdom to come. We do it for ourselves, for our families and community, for those who are facing brokenness, despair, and oppression to come to the renewal of our world. May it be so here at WCF and in our world. Amen.